Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as, as we prayed. You are so good, and your goodness runs after us. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your goodness upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill us. Come and fill your words. Come and fill my mouth. Come and fill our hearts and our minds that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing on in our His Story preaching series. Throughout the fall, we've been working our way through the Old Testament, hitting the high notes, if you will, starting in creation and moving toward Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ. And along the way, what we've seen over and over and over and over again is that God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. In fact, everybody say... God keeps his word. We've seen that what God says, God does. God always, always, always fulfills the promises that he makes. He always delivers. He always does it. Now, at the same time, what we've seen is that God's answers, God's ways, God's way of operating in the world are often very different from ours. I mean, remember back a few weeks and we're looking at Jericho, The battle plan was march around the city for seven days and shout, and you're going to have victory. Nobody would pick that. That's one of God's ways working out, different from our ways. And of course, God's thoughts are different than our thoughts, and God's timing is different than our timing. Think about Joseph, right? Joseph is given these dreams at the age of 17 that he's going to be the ruler. He'll rule over his family. He'll be great. And it takes him a very long time for his character to be molded and shaped to live into what God had called him to at a young age. God's timing is very different than our timing. And who would have picked going into slavery as the way to prepare the king or the king's right-hand man? And so we see that God does things differently. Now, all through this His Story series, we're seeing God is faithful. God is true. God does not lie. God always delivers. God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. Hold on to that, because we'll see that again as we walk through today, and we'll come back to that at the end. God keeps His Word. So let's just do a quick recap. We can't do all of the history up until now, although I'm always tempted to try. But this will help you if you've missed a couple of weeks or if you're new with us, where we are in his story, in the story of the people of Israel. Is we're in the time of kings and the time of prophets. The people of Israel, they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so the first king raises up, it's Saul. And Saul ends up being very half-hearted and he ends up being removed. Then God picks one that nobody would have chosen He picked the run of the litter in David because David was a man after God's own heart. And David became king. And God made David a promise. The promise that God made David is that one of your descendants will always be king. Not just any kind of king, but a king forevermore. This giant promise. Well, David has a son, Solomon. He becomes the next king. Things look good in the beginning. Solomon builds the temple. But Solomon is half-hearted, and Solomon ends badly. And there is a deep lesson in that. A lot of people start the Christian life, start a journey with God well, and finish poorly. 
That should be a warning to those of us moving up in the years. Just because you started well doesn't mean you will finish well. Solomon was the wisest guy who ever lived, and he didn't have a great ending. That's a freebie for somebody who needs it today. (laughs) Immediately after Solomon, right, the kingdom divides. It splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It doesn't take long for people to kind of get into God's plan and tweak it out. And so we have the northern kingdom. It's called the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, centered around Jerusalem, two tribes. And that's where David's descendants rule, is in Jerusalem and in that kingdom of Judah. Now, eventually, those kingdoms fall apart, and that's where we're coming close to today. The northern kingdom lasts about 200 years. The southern kingdom, about 135 or so beyond that. The Assyrians overthrow the north. The Babylonians, we'll see in a couple of weeks, destroy the south. During that time period, the kings, most of them are bad. A few of them are good. The kings were supposed to lead the people in righteousness, bring about peace. That's what the role of true leadership is intended to be. That's what a king under God's direction is supposed to be like. And they continually failed because they were building up the kingdom of themselves. They were empire building, but not building God's kingdom. And so who did God send? prophets, the prophets, and that's who we're in, and that's who's been speaking. The prophets constantly calling God's people back. Remember who you are. If you want to put a big heading on all of the books of the prophets, a heading might be hearts back to God, because that's what they sought to do. The people constantly fell into about five areas of sin. Idolatry, we looked at that with Elijah a couple weeks ago. It's not that they didn't believe God, they just wanted God and all the things that the other gods promised as well. So they wanted God and prosperity. They wanted God and their own ways. And they got into a lot of trouble as a result, and some of us are doing the same thing. Then, of course, there was also sexual sin. Like, they just couldn't help themselves. Like, the things the world was doing looked a lot of fun. If you had to put it in a heading, you're like... Church or sex? And they chose sex. And sometimes they chose sex in church. And I mean, it was a mess. It was a real mess. They also had a terrible disregard for the sacredness of human life. For their own convenience and for their own personal gain, they were willing to kill their children. And that was a deep heartache to the heart of God. That was a big sin. Then there was Sabbath breaking. Somebody goes, Sabbath breaking? Like not keeping a day off like every seven days? That was a major sin in God's eyes? Yes, it was huge. It wasn't about the day itself. It was about the fact that they wouldn't stop working long enough to trust God. They wouldn't stop working long enough to enjoy God. They wouldn't stop pressing and driving and succeeding because they couldn't and didn't trust God. That was a major issue in their lives. And the last one was injustice. They didn't take care of the poor. They didn't take care of the aliens. They didn't take care of the refugees. They didn't take care of widows. They didn't take care of orphans. They didn't take care of people who were in need. And God said, you're building your own lives, but you don't care about the people that I care about. And that was a deep grievance to his heart. That's the setup. Not so grand, is it? Not so different from today, is it? 
same things they dealt with are the same things we deal with today. And so God sends prophets, and the people don't listen. But God said, if you don't listen, judgment comes. And he sent reminders, and he he sent discipline, and he tried the light way, and they were stubborn-hearted. But God keeps his word, and God does what he says he will do. And so in 722 B.C., God allowed the Assyrians, people from what we would call Iraq today, they came in and they devastated the northern kingdom. There was this time of national crisis Northern kingdom falls. Southern kingdom is being threatened. It's a world power. It's a time of deep distress. It's a time in which the foundations were shaking. The culture was rattling. People were panicking. Anxiety was high. Does that sound familiar today? Nothing has changed. The details are different. But we go through these same things that people went through then. As then, so also now. And so... Isaiah comes on the scene, and he's our prophet today. You might have recognized that scripture. You hear it most of the time on Christmas Eve, which means you don't hear it most of the time. I don't mean we don't read it. I mean, you're on your way to tinsel and presents, and we tend to do, you know, seeker messages, and so it's hard to get into the depths of what Isaiah is saying. So we thought, let's beat the stores and do Christmas in the middle of November, but I noticed the stores beat us anyway. (laughs) I was trying, I was trying to free you from all the kind of cultural stuff that tends to keep us from really getting into the beauty and the depth of the word of God through the prophet Isaiah about this king who would come. Because basically Isaiah was saying, look, it's lights out for the northern kingdom, but there's still hope for the southern kingdom if you will repent and come back to God. Turn away from the things that have captured your imagination outside of him and come into allegiance with the God who loves you and who called you and who is king of all. And so Isaiah begins his preaching in this time of despair. Judgment is here, but judgment isn't the final word because there's hope that a Messiah will arise. And that's where our text in Isaiah 9 comes in, this promise of a Messiah. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, One of the things that really confuses people when they read the prophets, not only the poetic language, because we're sort of, you know, Greek thinkers and we want principles and we want it all laid out, but this this is poetry. But it isn't just poetry that confuses us. We don't understand our history and so we don't get all the references. And the prophets are really fluid with their verb tenses. There's something that is called the prophetic future, the prophetic past. They'll speak of something that has already happened that hasn't yet happened in time. They speak about it as though it's already occurred, but in their minds it has because God has said it and God always keeps his word. And so it gets confusing. The other thing, and we've talked about this before, is that that prophecy does something called telescoping. 
It often telescopes. You know a telescope like on a, on a ship, right? The old-time pirate ships or whatever, a telescope. So often the prophecy has an application in the immediate for the people of Israel at the time in which it is given, but it often will telescope out to the Messiah, and often it will telescope out beyond the Messiah to the day of the Lord's return, or the fullness of times, the day of the Lord, the end of all things. And so there's this pattern that you can find where it moves out, and and that can be a little confusing. So in this passage, Isaiah is describing these future events as though they've already happened, especially about the northern kingdom, like you're done, it's all over, lights out. But there's hope for the south if they'll repent. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the northern kingdom. That's where those tribes, they were part of the ten. That's where they settled. But this promise is that even though it's going to be a time of devastation, a time of despair, a time of darkness, a time of destruction, there is hope. And that's always the way it is with God. Judgment is not the last word. Hope is for those who will turn to him, for those who will repent and come to the Lord. God is going to send light. But the light isn't just going to be an idea. It won't just be a political movement. It won't be a philosophy. The light that's going to come is a child, a son that is given. And if you look at the chapters previous to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, that this child is going to be born to a virgin. That's impossible unless God's involved, unless God says it will be so. And this child will be called Emmanuel, God with us. How is that possible? Well, it's not unless God says it and then God keeps his word and does it. And so we're told 700 years before it occurs, that a son is going to be given, a Messiah is going to come, that one will come into a place of great darkness, even the land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulun, Galilee, that's where he'll be. So what happens? 700 years after the prophecy of Isaiah, it all starts to unfold. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is born. He's born in the line of David, the southern king, the king who was promised an heir of your own house will be king forevermore. And where is he born? Where is he born? He's born in Bethlehem near Jerusalem. In Bethlehem just as the prophet Micah said he would. He's near the city of David. And guess what? He's born to a virgin, to the virgin Mary. All of that's happening in the south. But then when it's time for his ministry, he goes up to the north. He goes to Galilee. In John chapter 2, we find out that he does his first miracle, and he does it at a wedding. And where is the wedding? Does anybody know? Cana. And where is Cana? In Galilee. And what's the first miracle? It's wine, (laughs) y'all. Wine is a symbol of joy. That's exactly what Isaiah says in these verses that come after 1 and 2, 3 and 4. Like, war is going to cease and there's going to be joy. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have a couple of glasses of wine, joy sometimes is what happens. It's a symbol, though, for the coming of His presence, the coming of the Spirit, a time in which God restores all things. It's no mistake that he started with his first miracle, bringing joy in Cana of Galilee. 
And then he moved his ministry headquarters to Capernaum. Capernaum is at the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's all in fulfillment of what God said would happen to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah because God keeps his word. Now, the thing about that region, when the Assyrians came, they totally destroyed it. I mean, they devastated it. In fact, what they did was they led many people captives. They put hooks through their lips and led them from Israel all the way to Assyria, which is Iraq. That's a long walk with a giant hook through your lip. And a lot of them died along the way. And then what they did was they they sent in their own people to live in the land and they intermarried with the people of Israel that were left behind. And that's where you get Samaritans. Remember, there was a lot of talk about Samaritans when you get to the time of the Gospels. They were disdained by the pure-blooded Jews, particularly in the South. And why? Because they were unclean and uncouth and they weren't pure. And they lived in that region that had been so devastated. It was an area of darkness. It was an area that had been degraded continually over the years. That's where the trade routes ran through. And so there were constantly Gentiles, unclean pagans mixing in. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of degradation. Why does God show up there? Why does Messiah come there? To bring hope. That's right. To show us there's no mistaking. There is no place in your life too dark, too degraded, too far gone that Messiah cannot come and enter in and bring life. That's the big message. That's the hugeness of who God is and what he's doing. Remember, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. He's saying that we live in darkness, not just in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. We live in the darkness of our own foolish decisions. You live in the darkness of the sinful choices you have made. But I've come that you might come out of that and into my light, into a place of hope and into a place of goodness doesn't matter what you face in this life. National calamity, that's what they were facing. Political distress. Gosh, you know what followed political distress and national calamity? Pandemics, hunger. Does that sound familiar to anybody? These cycles of history come and go. Governments come and go. The darkness is there and the light is always seeking to break through doesn't matter what we face at a national level. And I, and I got to tell you, I've seen so many Christians. I'm not downgrading the struggles that our country is in, but I see so many people panicking and losing it as though this were the first time anything like this had ever happened. And as though the word of God was not going to be fulfilled, he will sustain his own. There is no darkness too dark that the light of God cannot enter in at a national level or at a personal level. Which means if you're facing anxiety, depression, despair, addiction, broken relationships, the foolishness of your own choices, he can break into that if you'll let him. Because there's no place too far, too dark from the God who is light. 
and the Messiah who seeks to break in. That's my story, y'all. Some of you know this, but like I wasn't looking for God particularly, but my mother and a group of prayer warriors were seeking him on my behalf, and he broke in in the middle of a Grateful Dead concert when I'm standing on the 35-yard line of RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., and one minute I'm in the darkness, and the next moment he's walking me out, and I'm walking into light. And if you had seen me back then, you'd have gone, not that guy. Nobody in my high school class would have ever seen me here today in this place. Anybody else, but not that guy. Now, your life doesn't have to be that drastic. You have relationships that you don't know how to navigate. You have businesses that are struggling and falling apart. You have a future in which you have been given a diagnosis that you are completely uncertain about. But his light is great enough to reach you in the midst of whatever darkness you face. At whatever extreme that is, he can enter in. And he will enter in because nothing is too hard for him. Now let's go back to the text. Verse 6, we're going to just kind of jump to the part that, like, you'll probably hear Handel as I read this, right? (laughs) Handel's Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And suddenly this child who's born is, 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 we're seeing a character that's so much bigger than anything a man alone could have, right? The names, the titles, Isaiah says these are going to describe his character, and And notice how they impact the things that are of the deepest value and touch the deepest questions of the human heart. He's going to have wisdom. He'll have power and know how to handle it. He's going to bring security. There will be assurance. That's the stuff we run to our idols to find. And the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is saying, but it comes through the Messiah whom I will send. Let's look at the names. Wonderful Counselor. A wonder of a counselor. The wisdom of his plan. He knows things we don't. He has plans that we don't have. His plans are always greater. And you're safe to entrust the plan of your life into his hands. Why? Because he sees the end from the beginning. He's a counselor. He's an advisor. He's ideal. And he's wonderful. It means astonishing extraordinary. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's too old. Sarah's too old to have children. The angel shows up, says, this time next year, you're going to have a baby. And she laughs out loud because it's impossible. And, And she says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? That's the kind of counselor he is. He's a wonderful counselor. He's way better than Dr. Phil or Ann Landers or Dear Abby. He gives the best advice. And of course, his plan, what's his plan? It's the opposite of the world's plan. It's the opposite to the plan that many of us have committed our lives and have trained our children to commit their lives. We've trained our children so often to be about self and getting ahead and being the richest and having the most. And yet his plan is a plan of selflessness, not self-lifting up. His is a plan in which he dies on a cross that our greatest enemies can be vanquished. Our sin, our separation from God. 
No, no human would have come up with that. And yet God did. A violent death on a cross as the way to victory. He's the mighty God, right? This king, this Messiah, is more than just a man. He's also God. And we'll say that in the Nicene Creed, right? Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. He's both God and man. And what's interesting is, particularly in the early years of the church, all the heresies generally that erupted were over the issue of how can a man be God? How can God be a man? And we tend to want to fall in one way or the other. I say it this way. Before you're a Christian, you can't possibly imagine how God could become a man. And then for many Christians, what happens is they forget that God is a man. We get the God part, but suddenly his humanity, he's hungry, he became a baby. Like the humility, the shame that he bore the tiredness of sleeping in a boat. And so we tend to swing between these poles, and yet the Scripture says that we've got to hold them together in the tension that they are. There's a great mystery to it. It's hard to understand, and yet God said it would be this way, and it was because God keeps His Word. He's this mighty, mighty God. He's strong. It's a military title. He fights for His people. And that is incredibly good news because so many of us have been abandoned by the people in our lives. We haven't experienced the wonder of having someone fight for our hearts and come after us in our brokenness and in our messiness. And yet this is the kind of God we have, one who will fight for you because he loves you enough. It may require your whole life falling apart before you're willing to recognize he's coming after your heart. But he loves you enough to allow that to happen if that's what it takes for you to see that he will fight for you. You mean that much to him. He is the everlasting father. It's the father of eternity, right? He's before and he's above and he's beyond. He's not limited by time like we are. He moves in ways that we don't fully get. But as The God of eternity, he reveals himself as father, kind. Now that's hard if you're like me and you've been abandoned by the fathers of your life. It's taken me a lot of years. It was both the the best news my heart desired and yet also the thing I feared because father's abandoned in my world and yet he's the everlasting father. If you had a really good dad, you've got a leg up on this one. Because you've seen what a good father is like. And yet, even the best fathers fail us and they die because they're not the everlasting father. And yet, that's who he is. And that's the way he reveals himself. The one who is both almighty and kind. And his children can approach him, don't have to ask permission because it's been thrown open by what Messiah has done for us. You can always approach his throne of grace, not as a servant at the door, but as a child coming to Father's lap. And that's good news. He is the Prince of Peace, the Prince whose coming brings peace. And that's sort of the climax of all that comes before. He's the one who brings a peace that will last. God's 
focus of peace is in one person, this Messiah. He is the man of peace. In the past, which was the future for Isaiah and his contemporaries, it's the past for us. In the past, his coming made peace with God through the cross. In the present, those who come to him can find peace. And isn't that what so much of our world is desperate for? Think about your last 18 months. I bet you there have been some times of not peace. And yet he is the one who gives peace. A peace that passes our understanding. And in the future, he will usher in the fullness of a kingdom of peace. Remember the telescoping? He started the peace of God's kingdom. Jesus announced it. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking in. It has been inaugurated. And it happened in his life. And it happened in his death. And it happened in his resurrection. Death could not hold him. And it happened as he ascended to the right hand of the throne on high. But as Paul tells us, The creation is currently, and this is where we live, is currently groaning inwardly until the sons and daughters will be revealed. We wonder, why is it taking 2,000 years? Because God's not done building his family yet. And the invitation he gives to us who come to know Messiah, the one who is light, who received this life that lasts forever, is that we would take light to others and we would help others find their place in his family too. What a call he's given you. What an amazing, amazing plan he's invited us to be a part of. It's not just about us going to heaven. I mean, that, that's good. Looking forward to it one day. But there's a lot he calls us to do now. Bringing light into the darkness of other people's lives. Worshiping in the beauty of holiness. Taking care of the poor and the oppressed. bringing about the sanctity of life for the young and the old, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. That last sentence means God keeps his word because he's zealous that his word would be seen as true, that his story would play out, and that people like you and me would find our way into the story because he's calling and drawing us to himself. So let's wrap it up. Remember, I've said over and over and over again, God does what? Oh, goodness. God does what? God keeps his word. God keeps his word. What does that mean? It means that your future is safe, which means you can let go of the stranglehold you have on your present. It means that the promises God has given you in your life, out of the scriptures and in the still small voice of his speaking, God will keep those words. I don't know the time, I don't know the way. And that's usually where we get confused. But God keeps his words. So let me ask you, What words has he spoken to you? 
What words of promise? What words of hope about your own life, about your children's lives, about your grandchildren's lives, about those who will come after? Have you asked him? Might be a good idea if you haven't. And if you're in darkness, come to this one. And if you haven't really known him, but this is like banging in your heart and you're going, this must be true, something inside of me says it is, then just say yes to him. Turn to him. Turn away from life under your own strength. That's how it works. That's what repenting means. Turning away from me being in control of my life. Turning away from the things that are leading me into darkness and turning to the one who is light. He will forgive you, and he will give you hope. He will give you new life. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. Your word is so beautiful and so vast and so big. Would you let it break into our hearts today? Holy Spirit, would you counsel our hearts that we would know Messiah, Yeshua, God who saves Lead us to the one who's already been calling us to himself. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.